This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. I'm Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows. And Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And in this current cycle of episodes, which land each Sunday from now until at least the end of November, I will offer weekly reflections on what it's like to teach a college course on theater and society now when all the theaters and all the colleges are still trying to figure out what it means to do theater, to do college remotely during a global health crisis and in the midst of all the still unfolding uncertainties that have defined the year 2020. In this week's episode, I'll comment on the risks and reward of disparate mechanisms of institutional accountability during this complicated historical moment. And as always, I reflect on my most recent remote theater-going adventures with this week's brief comment on what it was like to help Detective Sidney Stiles solve a murder mystery in the interactive digital, ex- digital theatrical experience, A Chorus Crime. So in the first passage of today's podcast that I'd like to think about when I think about generally broader issues in culture and society as they reflect on what theater and society now is looking like, I am stuck thinking last week I talked a little bit about how to read and receive um, the genre of a demands uh, list. Like if there's a list like we see you American theater or the list presented by the Sarsi students at School of Theater in Boston University, I talked, I, I wanted to reflect a little bit about how we can think about a demands document as both a document of the moment in that it reflects current feelings and experiences, a document of the past in that it, do, in that it sort of reflects toward um, harms that had been done in circumstances that have existed, even as it is a forward thinking document, a document that is about imagining a different future, a perhaps more just or a more equitable future. And in some ways, I think that's where the document of the demands, the genre of the demands has sort of landed so powerfully in performance circles in particular, because that is in some ways when we stage performance, we are often operating in that multiple, that simultaneous register of multiple time time zones, as it were, or different temporalities, different spaces in time. You know, like when we stage a play, um, as you know, as many of you know, All Roads for Me Return to West Side Story. When we're staging the 1957 musical, uh, West Side Story in a contemporary contemporary production, we are simultaneously staging our moment when we are existing in space and time together now, say 2020, but we're also re- reactivating the history of 1957. And so we're bringing those two historical moments to collision. And then generally with a musical like some with West Side Story, which is always thinking toward what is coming next, what's the somewhere that's in the future that's not quite in, within reach of now, often many, many shows ask us to think about the future. And indeed, that's one of the standard sort of ways Western drama operates is it ends, uh, tragedy ends with the future being uncertain and comedy ends with the future being, being reaffirmed in marriage or coupling. So there's this way in which theater and performance is always operating in the simultaneous register of past, present, and future simultaneously. And distilling that sense of multiple, multiple senses of temporality within the performance encounter. 
And so in some ways that makes sense why a demands document often feels like performance. It feels like it's an enactment of some kind. And it's an enactment that is both a past enactment, an enactment reflecting on the past in the present thinking toward a future. And so I think uh, that was something I, as I think about the genre of a demands document as through the lens of how do we receive it? How do we read it? We have to read it for all three of those registers. Like what is the past, what is the present, and what is the future that's, that's being named or imagined by this document? And of course, what a demands document, and so that's, I, I, I've thought a lot about, as I mentioned last week, I've thought a lot about the demands uh, genre as how do we understand them? How do we receive them? How do we sort of register what's notable and significant about them? And then how do we return to them as archives of past moments? Um, so I talked at some length, as I mentioned, about that. And this week, though, I'm thinking about what seems to come to, if we're thinking about a demand as a performance, often it's an utterance. It's an utterance that expects a reply, that awaits a response. It's a demand. We would like you to do this. And then there's this moment of like, are you going to do anything? So if you say, I invite you to make these changes, and nobody responds. There's that gap that is an interesting gap of how is that, what is that doing? And then if somebody does choose to speak into that, uh, that gap, what does that, what shape does that take? And I think what we've, what we've discussed over the, over the course of the class a little bit, but then also in the course of society over the last three or four months is the ways in which different, um, different, uh, registers of we see you or we recognize the reality of racial justice injustice um how sometimes they can read as hollow or what is sometimes called performative um performative activism or performative statements and so uh so there's this question of how do we understand the response and one genre that the response form that the response has taken as i've begun to see it lately has been um in what i would call accountability statements or accountability pledges as a genre as a way of way of talking about um a way of speaking into the silence that is often left in in the moment after a demand is made and so it's not so much a rejoinder but it is a response and it's a response that is um, and I feel like we've seen accountability pledges manifest in a few different ways. In this week's newsletter, I linked to some that have been offered by some notable theaters like Woolly Mammoth in D.C. or Baltimore Center Stage in Baltimore. And I've also noticed how that how some of the first organizations that I have seen really come out with really forward thinking and really pointed accountability pledges have come from folks who are not necessarily marginal or without power, but are not actually located at the seats of institutional power. They are casting directors and publicity folk who are contractors, who are basically saying we are doing our work as independent contractors um, and we, we do not necessarily pull the levers of power, but we recognize our roles in being assistance to those folks with more substantive power. Both casting directors and publicity folk are have a lot of um, gatekeeping responsibilities, but don't always have a lot of uh, actual resource power authority. So they are often the folks who are hired by the institutional theaters to do the work of casting or do the work of PR, which uh, publicity, which is often has a lot to do with gatekeeping. To clarify what I'm saying, in a casting director, it's it's often the, the person or the office that is deciding which the actors who are being seriously considered to be hired for a part. And in the case of publicity, the gatekeeping, gatekeeping works in a couple different ways. Most notably, like which um, journalists review 
viewers and otherwise are being prioritized when it comes time to sort of grant interviews or um, offer comp complimentary seats to reviewers or journalists or other commentators. That is one of the key ways where the channel of how a particular show is seen or valued and which cultural authorities are considered relevant or important to the production being named. So, so there's ways in which these are ancillary um, I would say they're ancillary in that they are so influential and so important to what we see and especially how the public encounters performance. But they are folks who are generally hired on a contract basis, like they are working for a larger company that is the one who's producing the show or making the show happen. So in some ways, it's interesting to me that we do see two major regional theaters who are who have made this pledge, but only two. And then we um, have seen a lot of folks make affirmative principle statements, but not follow up with a, with detailed lists of, of of ways in which they are adjusting. And what all of these accountability pledges, I should say, is whether it's coming from uh, from the casting agencies like X Casting or uh, Whiting Stewart or Stewart Whiting, I forget which one it is, and then the the publicity director I talk about in this week's newsletter. Um, whether it's the theaters or the casting directors or the publicity folk, what they all end up doing is listing both ways in which our, we have made changes to how we're doing our practice. These are the changes we are committing to sort of continuing. And these are the things we know we have to work on. And in the meantime, these are the ways in which we're going to be partnering with new organizations or making changes of allocating resources or making connections to sort of say that we're we're committed to doing the work of doing more than we can do right now, understanding it's a process, but we will make those changes. And then all of them, almost all of them end with a uh, gesture of, we would like you to hold us accountable for these commitments. And so that's why I've come to call them as an accountability pledge. They are sort of doing what you would say, like a pledge of any kind. We're saying, I'm going to pledge to this public radio station. That I'm going to give you $45. Like I'm making this promise for an action. I will follow through one. And so these accountability pledges have been an interesting genre in terms of this question of how do we receive them? How do we receive them? Because often it is a question of, is it enough? What is dynamic about it? Where's the space of accountability? Is that all you're doing? Is that even relevant to the demands that were made? These kinds of questions of trying to match the demands with the accountability pledge can become a little bit of a point of tension that is always interesting to track, to see, is it deemed inadequate? Is it deemed... Uh, what, what's going on? And in both cases, these are public documents. These are documents that are offered in a public-facing way. All of the pledges I've mentioned have, are on the websites, have been launched via social media, all this kind of stuff. So there's a way in which it's a public accountability. And so it does open up these questions of speaking directly to the folks making the demands, saying, we hear you, we see the validity of your points, we recognize our culpability in these different ways, and we're committed to making changes, and we invite you to be a part of that process. And that dynamism of a, of, of a demands document being followed by an accountability pledge is a really interesting way in which it is sort of opening up this space of dialogue, and a space of dialogue toward processual transformative change, often of systemic or institutional uh, structures of inequity. So that's some one way I think we can really think about what uh, how a demand document operates in relation to a pledge, uh, an accountability pledge in this sort of reciprocal dialogue, sort of it's not the work is ongoing, it's not over, um, but your claims were valid and legitimate. 
What we did see this week, though, was something that really caught me a little bit up short, um, which was a different response to a different kind of accountability pledge. Um, because what we saw, uh, and that was when um, the U.S. Department of Education chose to uh, announce an impending investigation of the institution where I work, Princeton University, uh, for its um, for for um, based on an understanding of the pledge that the president of the University of Princeton made in a letter that was written to the Princeton University community, but published broadly and reported on broadly on September second of this year. So not even three weeks ago, um, President Chris Eisgruber wrote a letter committing to a variety of different initiatives to engage the um, local but also broader and global uh, structures of what Eisgruber is careful to name as systemic racism. This ways in which systemic racism sort of creates an obstacle to, uh, to opportunity and achievement. And there are certain ways in which Princeton has been uh, Princeton's own history sort of reveals that it has been participating in sort of these law, broader cultural trends, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so there was this letter, it was, le- it was uh, the, the Princeton, the Princeton uh, Ice Groupers letter sort of details a variety of academic initiatives, de- details a variety of ways of thinking about restructuring certain kinds of committees, of opening up different um, mechanisms of sort of thinking uh, of asking all units on the you know, on the campus to engage in their own sort of process of sort of self examination and self inquiry, seeing if there's ways in which they can make improvements. Um, there is specific mention of the quest- some of the questions that are that are. Uh, come up in a lot of the campus-oriented demands that very rarely are addressed, which is the real challenge of faculty diversification that seems to be uh, sort of persistent and ongoing. All of these questions are named in a pretty sort of moderate way, as befits this institution, as befits this, this you know, everything about what an institution like Princeton can do when it makes something like an accountability pledge. Because in some ways, that's what I have come to understand um, the uh, September 2nd letter as being along the lines of an accountability pledge of a forthright announcement to the folks who have made these claims and in some ways direct response to the faculty letter of July 4th, but then also in broader in dialogue with broader concerns in in the country and the nation and the industry at large. And so what's interesting about the fact that the U.S. Department of Education chose to investigate Princeton um, based on this letter was they have they ha- have framed their investigation as being uh, as being an admission of racism and, and therefore an admission of discrimination. And that Princeton has in its letter of committing to address systemic racism uh, has de facto admitted to the fact that it engaged in discriminatory practices and therefore was in violation of the Equal Equal Opportunity and Employment Commission, um, uh, Employment and Equal Opportunity Commission guidelines saying you cannot discriminate in allocation of opportunity or 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 employment. And so there is uh, sort of naming that there's $75 million that has come through federal contracts to Princeton in the time since President Eisgruber took office in 2013. And therefore, uh, now that President Eisgruber has admitted that Princeton is racist. That must mean also that there has been active discrimination going on at Princeton and that now there's a variety of mechanisms that the Department of Education has asked that that Princeton complete within the next few weeks to verify that it is not indeed out of compliance with these commitments that Princeton made when accepting these federal contracts or these other federal monies. So what's interesting about this is I don't think that that's necessarily what any of the folks in the theater circuit 
are thinking is going to come at them when they make a, an accountability pledge of we're going to, we're going to engage the questions of systemic racism. Um, and I think it came my I I can speak with some confidence that it came at some as something as a surprise to Princeton itself that the Department of Education would choose to target uh, uh, this letter this statement of this statement of intention as being an admission of some kind of uh, some kind of guilt that, like a, a kind of procedural guilt. And so I think what what's really interesting about this is it opens up a crucial difference in understanding how racism operates and it idea and the idea of how race racism operates as opposed to how race functions and there's some really interesting questions and i was reminded in this uh and it's challenging and it's a challenging thing and it was a shocking um for me it was a shocking revelation that that the that the current presidential administration and especially the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos would choose to approach an, uh, an acknowledgement of systemic historical and cultural racism in the United States as being an admission of individual guilt. And I do think that that opens up a really crucial question, because in some ways what President Eisgruber's letter says does never say that Princeton was systematically racist, as in methodolo- methodically racist in creating individual harms, but that there were elements of systemic or institutional racism that did impinge and create problems for addressing and for um, transforming inequity. And I think this opens up some of the questions that we've been thinking about, which is like the the persistence of what is sometimes called uh, colorblind ideology, this idea that um, America says it's free, says it's patriotic, says it's committed to equality and equality for for all exists, and therefore actually that, that then acknowledging systemic inequity is in some ways considered a, an affront or an assault on this fundamental belief in American equality. And this I was reminded of, of, of sort of the idea that uh, has circulated in a variety of circles in the last 10 years or so, where we start hearing when somebody's talking about racism or talking about the operation of race in American life, that the idea that by just talking about race and its reality, that that is in some ways racist, that like calling some like calling out the operation of race in a in culture is somehow introducing the introducing racism to the conversation, which is a response to in some ways colorblind ideology. The idea that race is impolite, that when we talk about race, we're talking about something that is over, that is done, that is impolite. And in some, and I was reminded of the words of Toni Morrison in her foundational lecture series, um, uh, play, Playing in the Dark, which she talks about the operation of whiteness in the literary imagination. And one phrase, and I'm going to quote Toni Morrison here, just to sort of use the, use, uh, defer to the, to the power of her language. Um, where she names that the habit of ignoring race in American life is understood to be a graceful, even generous liberal gesture. I'm going to read that again. The habit of ignoring race is understood to be a graceful, even generous liberal gesture. To notice is to recognize an already discredited difference. To enforce its visibility through silence is to allow the black body a shadowless participation in the dominant cultural body. According to this logic, Every well-braided instinct argues against noticing and foreclosing adult discourse around race. So basically what I understand Toni Morrison to be saying is that there is a deep cultural impulse in the, in the United States to, um, to believe that race is impolite, that we don't talk about race, that ra- talking about race is, 
is the better way to go. It's graceful. It's generous. It's the way that we do things in liberal society. And that to notice it or to focus on it is to sort of emphasize something that we all agree isn't relevant. Racism doesn't matter. We, we don't, we don't like racism. So why, why do we talk about it? Because it reintroduces this already discredited difference into the center of the discourse. And what she then goes on to say, again, to sort of revisit this this language, to enforce the invisibility of race through silence is to allow the black body a shadowless participation in the dominant cultural body. So in some ways, by ignoring race, we can say that black folks are allowed to be part of the society like they don't we don't have to talk about it. And this is, I think, one of the things that comes down to um, to what we're seeing in some ways, this different uh the shocking for me response by the Department of Education to the Princeton president to President Ice Gruber's letter was to misread the uh, the the intent of the letter in such an egregious way was in some ways to sort of say that they're operating from two very different points of view that um, that by acknowledging the operation the systemic operation of racism that is admitting individual culpability to racism and so what we see there is we see a collapse and a collusion of what is institutional racism and it makes it an individual problem and that's one of the ways in which uh, the law tends to work the law tends to understand that discrimination is an individual harm it is an individual act it is an act of individual ill intention and yet a good deal of what in the now discredited uh, by the president sort of idea of critical race theory and other structures of understanding systemic racism is saying it doesn't have to be an individual individual act. It doesn't have to be an individual hate crime to be an act that reflects, that is uh, um, embedded in racism. So a racist practice or policy doesn't have to be motivated by racist intent. It can have a racist outcome. It can have racist consequences without ever having to track back to an individual person saying, we'll do this because I don't like this group. So this question of discrimination and structural and discrimination against a whole group of people is, is one of the areas that the American jurisprudence system often struggles to, un, to sort of find a way to reconcile because it's really founded on this idea of a colorblind vision of equality and, 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 and equity, a colorblind vision of patriotism and freedom that to say that there's something about the American structure that does is characterized by systemic or ongoing or um, entrenched racism is in some ways considered considered to be a um, sort of an attack on the integrity of the system. Uh, and this is, I think, a core ideological point of difference in a lot of different segments of society. And indeed, one of the things that was very striking to me was um, two things that happened to be historically co coincident with the um, with the announcement of the Department of Education's investigation of Princeton was um, I was aware of it a day or so earlier, just through channels. Um, and I wasn't allowed to say anything um, that I knew that the Department of Education was had announced this investigation and I wasn't allowed to say anything. So I was waiting for the news to break. And then when the news broke, it happened to break in a way that was almost coincident with um, the pre uh, President Trump's announcement of a new commission to sort of introduce a patriotic history, a patriotic uh, education of this idea of sort of saying that uh, saying that racism is at the fundament of American society and life is 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 equivalent to child abuse. It's a lie. It's mis. And so there's this way in which we see this coincidence 
of uh, a, a vision, a presidentially authorized and articulated vision of American life that's saying racism is not part of the, is not at the foundation of American life. And then we see other folks, whether they be in marginal cultural institutions like the American theater or in an educational institution like Princeton, saying that actually we do recognize the ways in which systemic racism infused many of the practices of what we do as a historical, as a, as a longstanding institution. These are really operating from fundamentally counter posed points of view. And they are so in counterposed points of view in ways that are um, really, uh, it's going to be tricky to figure out how to reconcile because they, they arrive with different expectations of who they are, who, who, who needs to be answered to, and where does the harm lay. It's unclear to me whether or not, um, whether or not the uh, current presidential administration and its Department of Education's uh, announcement of an investigation of Princeton, what consequences that has. And indeed, it's a very legalistic procedure. There's not been any any um, lawsuits filed. There's not been any attempts to sort of extract the $70, $75 million. There's nobody has been brought up on criminal or civil charges of discrimination or fraud. So we don't really know how that's going to play out. I think in the space of the current moment as we are 45 or so days away from an election, um, I think it'll be a lot to see. It's one of the many things that are going on constantly. However, I do think we see this. Um, it was. It's hard for me also, just as it's hard for me not to receive the news of the Department of Education's investigation of Princeton in the context of the president's announcement that there's a new, going to be a new commission authorizing patriotic, patriotic education. It's hard for me also not to hear the Department of Education's rebuke of the president's letter in the context of the um, bomb alert that hit Princeton's campus um, uh, around 11 o'clock on Saturday, uh, September 19th. And it was a bomb alert that um, I'm sure some of, some of you listening also got word of through, I got in the space of about five minutes, I got a, a dozen emails and two phone calls and a number of text messages all saying that if I was anywhere near campus, I should evacuate immediately. There was a credible bomb threat. This is not a drill, various, various messages like that. And um, who knows? We don't know anything about the bomb threat. We don't know anything about the sources of it. But it was one of those things where it was like, it was hard for me not to feel the continuity of these events, of these so the sense of backlash, the sense of what are the ways in which Princeton is considered uh, to be a target, which is the way Princeton is perhaps differently vulnerable. Um, and what are the ways, and when we got this bomb threat, one of the crucial things is, is I live within sight of the main Princeton campus. So it was one of those things. It wasn't at my building. I wasn't on campus. I wasn't living on campus. But it was one of those things where it landed not just where I work. It also landed where I live. And so it opened up these questions of, and just as because what the work I do is so rooted in principles and premises and practices of anti-racism, it opens up these questions, different questions of vulnerability, of who are, what are the forces in which, um, uh, what are the demands that I'm negotiating as I'm considering who do I answer to and how do I answer these different challenges that are coming in terms of my own personal pedagogical and intellectual commitment to be accountable? To whom am I going to be accountable and at what consequences? Because honestly, I don't think that 
anybody in the, who's been involved in the cultural discourse around the demand statements or the accountability pledges, I don't think any of them expected that the feds would be coming out, were coming out with investigations accusing folks of individual racism, individual acts of racism, or of, of in talking about systemic racism, that there was an idea that in, in acknowledging systemic racism, there was an acknowledgement of some systematically uh, racist discriminatory practices. And this is going to be an interesting thread to see how can we talk about one set of concerns with this other set of concerns competing for what does the word racism mean in this context when we're thinking about history and institutional practice? What does the word racism mean? Because in some ways, it's a different set of questions being asked when we're talking about systemic racism. It's in some ways a different conversation of what the word racism means as opposed to what it means as an individually racist act versus a systemic or in systemic operation of institutional racism. So there's interesting collision there in terms of a definition of term and it it's not a turn that I expected would necessarily be adjudicated by the federal government. And yet, as so often happens in 2020, here we are in a place we didn't really see coming. And it's uh, surprising and it's confusing and it introduces new elements of uncertainty. But it is one of the ways in which theater and society now are both engaging these broader questions. And it's not always certain how they're going to play out and how they're going to play when they reach beyond the theatrical bubble or reach beyond the educational bubble, as in this case, this did. When Princeton's pledge of accountability was seen as a pledge of an, an admission of guilt, it shifted the register of what that rhetorical gesture was because it spoke outside of the educational bubble. And so we have yet to see a, uh, a similar legal challenge or investigation launched against any of the theaters or organizations who've acknowledged, uh, who've presented accountability uh, pledges, but it does open up different questions of what happens when a discourse operates within a bubble of educational uh, an institutional bubble of an educational institution or a theatrical bubble of the theatrical industry, what happens when folks outside of that industry choose to say, we're going to have, we're going to have, we're going to have our say about this and what we say about it might be not, not be using the same terms or definitions. So I'm not sure all of that makes sense, but this is in some ways all I could think about when I was thinking about preparing the um, podcast this week was really thinking about what is the promise made in an accountability pledge and to whom does an accountability pledge imagine itself to be accountable to? And then what if another body comes in and says, uh, we'll take your accountability pledge and we'll make it mean something else? Um, we weren't your intended audience, but we'll uh, point ourselves as the audience and we're going to take your pledge at its word and we're going to follow up with it perhaps toward a different end. And so this is an interesting set of questions that we find ourselves in. And um, I don't know where it's going to go next, but it does open, uh, but I think it does remind me again of why this sort of conjunction of how when we look at what's going on in the theater and we think about how that connects or doesn't with what's going on in the society at large, um, it can be a very generative space for how the theater can be a powerful micro laboratory for thinking about social change in the world well beyond the theatrical bubble. And in a moment, I'll be back to talk about something very different, something, uh, a big shift in tone as we talk a little bit about my remote theater going adventures for this week. For my adventure in remote theater going this week, I took 
what was something of a blind leap. I got a ticket for a show I saw mentioned on social media, a show that caught my attention. Uh, it's called A Chorus Crime, which was billed as an interactive digital theatrical experience. And it's presented, it seems to be, as part of an ongoing series produced by Playbill Social Selects and Seize the Show. Um, this is uh, a series, uh, this, the high concept of the series seems to be following a quantum leap time traveler Bill and Ted kind of thing, where we have a hard-boiled sort of film noir-esque, tough-talking, hey, hey, like a tough-talking, tough-drinking, tough-living detective named Sidney Stiles, who is ostensibly a crack detective, but as we go along, we realize that she really relies upon her assistant in order to solve the crimes that tend to be circulating around the theater district. Um, my impression is, is that these, these, this series may, may happen once every month or so, and that they're each set in a different period in, uh, in or adjacent to Broadway. In this case, a chorus crime, as the name might sig signal, uh, evokes the period of the middle 1970s when a chorus line premiered, uh, the middle 1970s where New, where Times Square was sort of tawdry and different than it is today. So um, what it is, is basically the way it works is you get a ticket and it's a twofold thing in that you it is billed as interactive. And the way that the interactive component works is it is a live, the performance itself is a live performance on Zoom. And uh, it's a live presentation on Zoom, but there's an interactive component wherein the audience are asked to use a web-based software software called um, Gameiotics, which allows you to sort of complete a poll or answer questions or participate in other activities on an interactive use on a website. And they ask you to use it on your phone so it can be responsive to touch to select choices, etc. And what this allows for in the narrative dramaturgy of a chorus crime or the Sydney Styles mystery series is it allows for the audience to make choices about who, what, which next suspect they interview with or who they think is most, uh, or what, like to play other kinds of interactive things of offer perspectives of which, which is the show you want to go see or whatever. And so all of this is built dramaturgically along the lines of what we might be familiar with, with, um, kind of a mystery party game or uh, like uh, the interactive mystery party games that were popular in the 1980s and 90s. They haven't gone away where there were sort of role playing games where everybody got a character and you, were, you had a certain amount of information. And the trick was trying to make sure that you asked the right questions of the characters so that they would reveal the right amount of information. It also seems to borrow dramaturgically upon a style of of young adult or middle grade book writing um, called Choose Your Own Adventure, where you get to an end of a moment and you make a choice of do you want to go here or do you, do you want to go here? And then that will determine what comes next. And so what clearly the writers of of uh, Chorus Crime, uh, this piece was written by Kevin Hammonds, Drew, pa Drew pa Parizier, Parizier uh, Carolyn Prue, and Jacob Thompson. And uh, what they have done is they've built a scenario that centers around um, uh, Sydney Styles arriving in 1976. There's an elaborate time traveling conceit that I don't didn't fully understand, but it seems like Sydney Styles has to solve each mystery in order to be able to sort of jump ahead to the next one, hopefully getting back to her original where she's supposed to be in time, which would seem to be the mid 40s or late 50 or early 50s. So, so it begins where we get the, sort of the the instructions from some phone phone person, and uh, we follow Sydney Styles, and we are her trusty um, 
her 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 trusty assistant Mertz, and so Mertz, uh, we are cast as uh, every member in the audience is Mertz, and so we're following along and we're offering our input in terms of who do we want to interview next, who, um, where do we want to go next, what who we think seems most guilty or who, what do we think seems most interesting, and along the way there are um, clues that are dropped uh, in each of these interactions, which confirm. Um, which confirm or reveal other details. And so there's certain routes that are more productive, certain routes that are less productive. In our presentation, at the end of the, at the, end of the event, we were, we were told by the MC, who is an interactive presence throughout, sort of operating as sort of host and narrator, uh, and we were told that, uh, that our group was able to access five of nine clues. What's unclear, and of course, as it goes along, so let me just tell you the brief scenario. The brief scenario is that um, uh, Sylvia Stiles and Mertz are told to go to backstage at a musical production called Hump. And Hump is stars Buddy Hackett, and it's a musical version of the Humpty Dumpty show and uh, the Humpty Dumpty story. And so we're supposed to go uh, seek out um, a person, uh, I believe the character's name was Maxine, who is the dresser there because she has information about a crime that's unfolding that where our help is needed on. So we go find Maxine. She's the dresser. She's in the Corrine. She's in the dressing room of, a, of the chorus girls. And then in a series of events, uh, as she has some some fraught interactions, some some uh, some testy interactions with each of the young women who are in this dressing room. There's a blackout, there's gunshots, and suddenly Maxine is dead. And so the job of Sylvia Stiles and Mertz uh, shifts to figuring out who killed Maxine. And so in a variety of, in a, in a, in a range of different ways, we are invited to sort of interact with these four very uh, different personalities of Corrine's to see who among them killed. Because because the room was closed, it was only Mertz, Sydney, Maxine, and the four chorus girls. We know that the suspects are one of the four, and so it's our job to figure out who. And the next half hour or so, 45 minutes or so of the, of the performance or the experience is us dancing around Manhattan, moving around to different spaces like a boxing gym or a dance class or an acting class as we attempt to get information from these Corrines to figure out who killed Maxine. And of course, at the end, there's a moment, a crucial juncture where we eliminate one suspect, so that leaves three, and then we choose to determine how uh, the group decides who they think killed Maxine. What's unclear to me, uh, what it seems to me at this point is we go into sort of a version of mystery, of interactive mystery storytelling where the audience is always right. So um, I, I'm suspecting that our audience chose a character, Bella. I was aiming for the character. I voted for the character, Rose. But the audience, the collective will of the gathered audience, I'm guessing it was about 20 to 40 people, uh, sort of leaned toward Bella. And then Bella was, of course, the was, of course, the killer. And the next scene revealed the backstory. So what was interesting about it was how it leveraged what were a variety of, I, I name checked a few different sources, like these party games, um, these interactive novels, uh, and also one of the more notable accomplished pieces of, of commercial drama, which was interactive, which also aligns with some other other popular murder mysteries where the audience gets to have a vote or a voice. This is a genre of performance that is quite actually commercially lucrative in a modest way. It's never a Broadway hit, but in many cities uh, around the country, there are long running um, 
long-running shows or recurring shows in which there is this element of audience participation, which is highly tightly scripted. There is a way in which the performance will be different each night, depending on what the audience chooses, but it's all tightly scripted. So there's ways in which interaction is encouraged, but in only within very particular parameters. It's not exactly an improvisatory structure. It's a structure that is sort of more like a video game where depending on which pathway this set of results will happen. And what was interesting in this experience was the ways in which the experiments with the technology were um, in some ways the star of the show. The script was there, the actors were able, there was something excited, but it was also this sort of sense of how is the Zoom going to work because we did have the sort of the way that they Zoom managed it. It was um, characters would come and go with their with their cameras coming on and off and then we'd see the interstitial scenes that would sometimes be a static slide which would be an establishing shot of telling us where we were were we in a hallway were we in a theater space were we in a dance studio or in other times we had a recurring loop of a sort of stock footage of what Times Square looked like in the 1970s. So there was this element of kind of in and out of the dramatic scene um, that uh, allowed, I think, for the internal reshuffling of the deck of the of the story cards, depending on what was happening next. And then, of course, we had these moments when we got to decide what what show we wanted to go see, what uh, whether who like there was a a set of things of trying to press a button so that the group would not would land within a certain window, as well as a simple polling structure. What I found interesting about it was um, it was uh, the experience of, of a chorus crime. Um, I was very impressed by the sort of the game game clarity of the actors. The actors offered good, broad, broad stroke characters that were very distinct and compelling and intriguing. And the visual design of, say, the dressing room, like there were details in it that were just enough to make me feel like, am I looking at a clue? It became, there was something about it that was entertaining in a kind of an armchair mystery kind of way. As an experience, though, I don't know that I really connected to it the way I might in space and time watching the excitement of watching actors make their change or watching actors respond to the choice made by the audience. In this case, what ended up happening is because we were dealing with the technological interface, because we were dealing with the technological interface, there was an element in which the humanity of that spontaneous improvisation, which in my experience of say, uh, Edwin Drood or other mystery kind of shows, is there's something exciting watching the actors in the moment make it happen. And there was something that amplified the humanness of the apparatus, the storytelling apparatus, in that it was sort of fun and exciting to feel uh, that we were part of the actors. We like it's almost a way in which what is supposed to be behind scenes becomes on stage because you get to see how the actors manage these shifts and the discovery of what the, what the audience has revealed. And that is always something that really amplifies the sense of live encounter and live experience. But here, not unlike some of what I was reflecting on last week when I participated in a live network television taping, there was an element in which this was very constrained, that our expectations of audience participation were very limited and a little bit, for me, stressful. I wasn't sure if I was doing it right. I wasn't sure, like, I had to switch devices midstream because I wasn't sure that I was able to interact with one component in the way that I wanted to. And so there was an element where I felt a little at, at, this, at the whim of the technology. There were a couple occasions when the Zoom management didn't quite work, where screen dis didn't disappear, so the MC was left on screen when I think 
Dave Dempsey was supposed to be off screen. These kinds of things were going on. And there was a way in which the technology felt like it was instead of invisibly in service of the experience, it was a sort of a, a place where my anxiety came up. Also, it, here again, we encountered the weird tick I have about how I don't love chat. I, I don't love interacting with people over chat via performance. I mean, it, it, but in the performance, though, it was something that they really did encourage. This the performance did encourage folks to do a locational check in, to do sort of what are, where are you coming from, what's your time zone. There was somebody calling from middle of the night in Wales. There was somebody calling from California. So there are folks calling from different regions, and there was something interesting about that. There was also this performance began within an hour or so of the news breaking of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. So there was an element that was an interesting thread in the chat where people were acknowledging that, and 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 others were completely not acknowledging that. It was it sort of there was an element of the 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 liveness was very present for me in the chat at pre-show, but it also I didn't know how it was integrated into the experience of the show itself. So that I think became something where I was realized that these three technical components, the interactive chat, the interactive components of the playing with the Gameotics app, and then also the dynamism and the spontaneity of the Zoom interface. Um, these were elements that didn't always feel entirely integrated into what my experience was. And so that was became something very interesting to me in terms of understanding what what is it that allows me to feel like I'm experiencing a live theatrical event. And does the technology provide the portal into that as it might have in all for one or um, other experiences I've had where the technology sort of became the plot, the portal into the liveness of the experience? Or is the technology or the platform the thing that takes me out of feeling like I'm directly connected? And so it is an interesting set of questions that this piece raised for me. Also, it raises the interesting questions of of the the breadth of the theatrical ecosystem where this was not a piece that aspired to art this was a piece that aspired to fun to entertainment and to diversion and it does remind me how often that in the contemporary theater there are um either it's artistically ambitious or artistically accomplished so maybe a broadway musical or a broadway show might not be the most artistically ambitious but the execution is extraordinarily well accomplished other shows might be smaller and smaller venue but they really have artistic ambitions but there's a whole other category of live theatrical entertainments which are really quite quite dynamic and available in many cities which are oriented towards simply toward having a good time at the theater in live proximity with other folks these are, uh, and, and this is not to put any disparagement on them, but that the art is a different art and it is an art of having fun. And I do think that that is what I was looking forward to coming in. And I'm not sure I got it. And I think I'm in, I might come back though and see where Sydney Styles goes in her next adventure to see how these folks are really trying to figure out how to build that sense of dynamic, interactive, uh, fun making um and does is there a way where this disparate constellation of interactive technologies will support them in giving the experience of what it's like to have just a simple silly good time in live proximity with other audience members watching talented game performers just sort of make make hay out of pretty silly material but make it all work in a way that feels fun because i do think that was the goal a different kind of art perhaps but not necessarily i think what we often think of when we talk about commenting on theater it was a different art it was the art of making fun and having fun and having fun in community that um i think this project this uh the sydney style series is aiming for and i'm curious to see how whether or not they can find a way to to bridge the seams between what 
what were for me became gaps in my experience of having a good time at this thing. Not that I didn't have a good time. It was amusing. It was diverting. I was impressed by all the performances. And I thought that it was a really interesting experiment and a perfect adventure for me in my ongoing adventures in remote theater going. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions, recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape people. Stinky Lulu Says, the podcast began in the summer of 2016 with a cycle of six episodes, which are still available on SoundCloud if you really want to hear them. Uh, And then after laying dormant for several years, the podcast was rebooted in the spring of 2020 in the context of the COVID-19 shutdown, both as a way to respond to the unfolding crisis and also as a teaching resource for a course I was then teaching in 21st century Latinx drama. Then after those six episodes came to a brief summer's hiatus, Uh, I wasn't sure whether the podcast would would come back, but now, with our campus still closed, Stinky Lulu Says is back to continue with weekly episodes through at least November's end and as part of the conversation happening in my Fall 2020 course, Theater and Society Now. Links to the resources referenced in this episode can mostly be found in the September 20th edition of my Theater Click newsletter. For a link to the newsletter's archive and to other resources, look for the Profe Herrera tab on my Princeton University Scholar page. That's scholar.princeton.edu slash bherrera. The Profe Herrera tab is also where you'll find uh, the link to, to, to the transcript for today's episode. Transcripts are typically available within a few days, give or take, of the podcast's first posting. And if you don't see it, please nag me at. Sometimes I do get behind. A direct link to the Profe Herrera tab is also the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page, at StinkyLulu. And of course, if you have something you would like to have your say about what Stinky Lulu says, you can always find me on both Twitter and Instagram, at StinkyLulu at S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. And you can always email me via my Princeton address at or at stinkylulu at gmail.com. And as always, this podcast experiment uh, relies upon the questions, comments, and provocations of all of my listeners, not just those enrolled in my course, but also all the rest of y'all. And as the podcast evolves, I will be relying on your questions or your thoughts to prompt what Stinky Lulu might say next time because I actually really do look forward and welcome the opportunity to hear from you. And thanks for listening. And I'll close this week as I will, I think, for the duration of the fall 2020 cycle of Stinky Lulu Says episodes by invoking the brilliant words of Dr. Kamara Kamara Phyllis-Jones, who signed off from a Zoom event several weeks ago with these words, be strong, be safe, be anti-racist. Uh, Dr. Jones's words have become my affirmation, my meditation, my prayer, my intention for 2020, when the only thing that feels certain is the feeling of uncertainty. So until next time, as you maintain your social distance, please do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds. And as we all do whatever we can do along those lines, as we stay fierce in both our artistry and our advocacy, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we find a way to keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward, even through this. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says.